Good to see you all tonight. Good to be back with you. We appreciate your coming out to worship with us, study God's Word with us. Um, on the screen, let's see. Move that, I guess. Oh, I got a. Ah, got this thing here. I'm sorry. I'm not not as prepared as I ought to be. Apparently, my apologies for that. Okay, this is Cochise. Cochise was a great warrior of the Apache Nation. Lived 1805 to 1874. And Cochise, um, if I can push the right button, it might work better. Cochise led an uprising against the United States government. Started in 1861 throughout the Civil War, lasted until 1872, uh, the Western Indian Wars. Cochise was an amazing individual. He was brave, he was fearless, he was just, uh, it just seemed like he had the most amazing luck. Seems like he was just impossible to kill. Uh, the the uh, army soldiers, he, he would come running or riding a horse directly at them and they would fire and they, they would never manage to shoot him and, and he was just sort of this uh, awe-inspiring character that the government didn't know what to do with. But sickness did what the United States Army could not do. And Cochise died of abdominal cancer in 1874. And on the day of his death, he had a meeting with a guy named Tom Jeffords. Tom Jeffords was an army scout slash ranger slash prospector a uh, guy that represented the U.S. government in some of their talks with the Native Americans. And, and Tom Jeffords was the only white man, basically, that Cochise would trust, that, that he would believe, you know, they, they, they'd had an understanding with each other. And so Tom Jeffords meets Cochise, and he's very ill, and, and Cochise says to him, do you think that you will ever see me alive again? And, and Tom Jefford says, I don't know. I think by tomorrow night you will be dead. And Cochise says, do you think we will ever meet again? And Tom says, I don't know. What do you think of it? And Cochise replies, I've been giving it a good deal of thought since I've been sick here. I think we will. Somewhere up yonder, good friends will meet again. And I'm getting all this from one of Bill O'Reilly's books, Killing Crazy Horse, if you're interested, about the wars with the Indians in the West. So Cochise dies later that day, the great Apache warrior. And, and when his people bury him, lay him to rest, they bury him with his gun belt on that contains a hunting knife and a revolver, and they also bury him with a loaded Springfield rifle placed under his left arm. Not, not an empty rifle, but a loaded rifle, because in the afterlife, naturally, he's going to need to hunt and to do the same kind of things that he's done during his life here on planet Earth. And, and it, the book also says... 
that when they lay his remains to rest, they shoot two horses there near his burial site, kill the horses so that he will always have a horse to ride in the afterlife. So the horses, you know, get to go with him in the afterlife because you've got to have a horse to ride if you're going to hunt buffalo and whatever else he was going to do with his rifle and his revolver and his hunting knife. Now, that really isn't that unique in the grand scheme of things. We think about the Egyptians and the pyramids and mummies and those sort of things. We think about the Vikings and there are all these different cultures that, that would send their people into the afterlife with tools or things that they might need. The Egyptian pharaohs, when archaeologists have you know, excavated in the pyramids and the tombs of these Egyptian leaders, and, and they've got canoes in there for them to use in the afterlife, and they've got weapons in there for them, and they've mummified their cats and placed them in there, and they've got food in there. In the pyramid, there's food for the pharaoh to eat in the afterlife. And, and, of course, we in the 20th century have gone in there and guess what? All that stuff is still laying there, right, where they laid it. Because they couldn't take it with them. But, but that culture was conscious and thinking about what came after death, the, the afterlife. You know, it's this subject of mystery and, and speculation and, and, and debate and things of that nature. And, and it just seems to me that it's a universal concept to believe in the afterlife. I'm not aware of any earth culture that, that doesn't have some belief system about what comes after death. Now, in our modern day, we've got atheists and agnostics out there that have convinced themselves that there's no such thing as an afterlife. But, but historically, that's not been the case. And, and maybe the atheists say that we're now, we've now enlightened ourselves and educated ourselves to the extent that we don't need to believe in fairy tales anymore. But I would propose it's quite the opposite. The fact that belief in an afterlife is universal and, and you know, that we've had to teach ourselves out of that tells us something that, that that's just instinctively part of our being to think about immortality and God and, and things of that nature. Belief in an afterlife. In Job chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, Job said, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Job poses the question that everybody wants to know the answer to. If a man dies, will he live again? Is there anything after this? And Job's already telling us the answer. Yes, there is, that we're made by a God who's going to reclaim what he has given us and that there is going to be an existence after this. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is when David's child dies after the incident with Bathsheba. And uh, David is, is, you know, very distraught and, and tormented because his young child is sick and, and the child dies and his servants are afraid to go tell him that the child is dead because they, they don't know what David's going to do. He's been so upset about the child being sick. 
But he finds out he's dead, no telling what he might do. And, and when he finds out the child is dead, David, he washes himself, he cleans himself up, he goes and gets some food, and they're a little perplexed by it. And, and David makes this statement, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David recognized that he would see that child again. He would be with that child again at some point when his time here on earth is over. And of course Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon describes the aging process and the end of life. And in verse 7 he says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. We, we are a dual nature being. There, there is the dust. There, there is this fleshly body that's made of the same elements, the same chemical compounds that are in the plants and all the other animals and, and the ground itself. Carbon and oxygen and you know various minerals that make up our body. But then there's that eternal nature. There's that soul, that spirit. And that spirit's going to go back to God. And there's going to be an accountability there, God tells us. The afterlife. God lets us know about the afterlife. Things that we can just guess and speculate about. The Word of God tells us. And the Word of God tells us that the afterlife is different than the life we have here. Because people get a lot of weird ideas about the afterlife. You know, people think that when you die, you, you turn into an angel and you grow wings and you go sit up on a cloud and just kind of sit there on the cloud looking out at the earth or something. And we, we know now, we know heaven's not literally up on top of a cloud. The earth is round and we use up in a figurative sense to describe this place that, that we're, we don't know where it's at. But there are people on the other side of the earth looking in the other direction and calling that up. But I, I remember 20 years ago, I, I, I was a racing fan when Dale Earnhardt died. You know, and for the next several weeks, everybody that won a race after that, well, old Dale was sitting right there in the car with me today helping me drive. You know, and I, and I guess they thought Dale was up in heaven somewhere in a car on a racetrack riding around in circles. And, and people just kind of think, well, if, if you just love to fish, you go to heaven, you just go fish all the time. You're going to be there at a big lake and in a boat with a pole, I guess, and you're going to be fishing. Or, or, you know, field of dreams, baseball players, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. Wow, I thought it was heaven. You know, you're just going to play baseball all the time if you're a baseball player. People just picture heaven as being kind of this amusement park kind of thing that whatever your favorite thing to do is, that's what you're going to do. Now the, the Sadducees in the New Testament in the first century, uh, they didn't even believe in an afterlife. Acts chapter 23 and verse 8 says the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And with that in context, they come to Jesus in Matthew 22 and they ask him a question. And they're trying to ask him 
unanswerable questions. They're, they're trying to get Jesus to say something that's either going to get him in trouble with the Roman government or get him in ill standing with the people. And so they come at him with these hypothetical questions. And, and in Matthew 22, uh, they, they come to him in, in verse, and, and Matthew again remarks in verse 23, that they say there's no such thing as a resurrection. And they ask him, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother, according to the law of Moses. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, and they think, well, there's no way he's going to be able to answer this. How, how can he just pick one? And Jesus answered them, you are wrong. You, you err the King James Version. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The, the conventions of this life are not what's going to be in heaven. It's not going to have the same social structure that we have here. It's going to be something totally different. Or as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at about verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And, and Paul says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, the glory of the earthly is of, a, is of another kind. And in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Paul says, what you don't plant in the ground, you take a, a, a little kernel of corn and plant it in your garden, and it doesn't grow up to, look, to be a big giant kernel of corn. It grows up to something different. It grows up into a green plant with leaves and a, and a stalk. It doesn't look like what you plant in the ground. And Paul says it's the same way with the resurrection. It's not going to be like we have here. It's going to be something different. But it's going to be what God wants it to be. And God perfectly suits things for their environment. God creates fish to live in the environment of the water. And us to live in the environment of the land and breathe oxygen. And God always makes everything perfectly suited to where it exists. And such it is with the life after this life. That we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but God is taking care of that. 
for us. But it'll be different. And it'll be here sooner than we think. You know, the Bible uses various illustrations to talk to us about the brevity of life. Job 7 and verse 6, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Verse 7, Remember that my life is a breath. My, my life is wind. My eye will never again see good, Job says, because he's in the middle of his suffering when he utters these words. But life is swift. Life is like a breath. It's just like a little gust of wind and it's gone. It, it moves rapidly like a weaver's shuttle. 1 Peter 1 and verse 24. Peter says, For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. How are your flowers doing in the yard? Not doing too good right now, are they? They're gone. The season changed and the flowers are gone. And, the, and you're not mowing your grass anymore, at least I'm not mine, because these things change very rapidly and they're temporary in their nature. Or as, of course, as James says, James chapter 4 and verse 14, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears, it's a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You get up in the morning and that fog is out there and it, it just looks, you know, we, we say you have to cut it with a knife. It's so thick and an hour later the sun comes up and poof, it's gone. It's gone. And that's how life is. It's here and then it's gone very suddenly sometimes. We had tornadoes come through western Kentucky and Arkansas and Missouri and Illinois couple of nights ago and, and you know people of all ages and various social status they thought it was just going to be another day like any other and tomorrow's going to be just like today and suddenly their life was over and, and, and life works that way oftentimes it, it's just it's a mist that vanishes, and we don't like to think about that very much. But you open the paper sometimes, and you look at the obituaries, which I've noticed I do more of as I get older. And used to look at the obituaries when I was 18 years old. I didn't care about those. And now I find myself looking at them. And... This wasn't this week, but, it, but recently in the Commonwealth Journal on a given day, I looked at the obituaries, and there was a 95-year-old female in there. Is there anybody over 90 in the room? I don't see anybody. Okay, so, so you know, to us, oh, that, that's, that's an old person, 95. Well, okay, that's to be expected. 95-year-old passed away, yeah, sure. And then there was a 66-year-old male in the same day's obituaries. Well, okay, that's, that's getting a little closer to home for some of us. And, and then there was a 54-year-old that day. Well, I'm 55. And when somebody younger than you dies, you kind of notice that. You know, that kind of makes you think a little bit. And then there was a 29-year-old the same day. And we realize this kind of in abstract terms. We, we, babies die. 
and teenagers die. And, and, you know, people of various ages, death does not discriminate based on age as much as we would like it to. But we, eh, that's, that's other people. That's not me. Life is swift. Life is brief. Fortunately, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what it's like in Luke 16. Jesus tells us a story. He says in verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things? But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to, the, to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, they can be, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If I'm going to go on a trip to some place I've never been, it's always nice to talk to somebody that's been there before, isn't it? They give you some pointers on things. Well, Jesus is giving us pointers on a place we've never been before. He's telling us what it's going to be like after death. And, and he, he shows us that there are two destinations. One is a place of comfort, a place of rest. The other is a place of torment, a place of anguish. And Jesus tells us, that, that which of these two places we end up is a result of how we live here on earth. That our conduct in this life has a direct bearing on where we're going to be for eternity. And he also lets us know that, that once we get to one of these final destinations, we can't go to the other one. There, there is this chasm, there is this great gulf, there, 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 there's this abyss here that, that we can't go over there where you're at and you can't come over here where we're at. Well, what about purgatory? What about limbo? Well, Jesus doesn't mention purgatory because it doesn't exist. Purgatory is a comforting 
notion that certain religions have come up with that if you've been not real good but not real bad that you can go to this place, this intermediate state and you can kind of suffer there for a little while and after you've kind of paid your time and, and people back on earth will pray for you and you can be lifted up out of purgatory and, and eventually end up going to a nicer place. It's just not there. God doesn't tell us about that. It's a false doctrine. It's just not a real thing. We have two possible outcomes. And time is still running on planet earth here because the rich man is concerned about his family who are still in the earth life. He's worried about his brothers. He doesn't want them to come to this place where he's at. And is there anything you can do to, to go to send somebody to warn them? Because he's in agony. He's in misery. He wants one drop of water because that'll make all the difference. The resurrection. Jesus talked to the Sadducees, explained to them about the resurrection that they didn't believe in. In John chapter 5, in verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, Christ says. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. Once again, Two, two outcomes, not three, not four. There's two possibilities. The Apostle John in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, he says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we should be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. As servants of Christ, as children of God, we look forward to being like Christ, being in this spiritual realm of comfort and rest and, and glorification. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, Jesus then talks about His second coming in judgment. And says, um, sorry, I got the wrong chapter there. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. John in Revelation gives us an image of the judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, and starting at verse 11, and he describes it there, uh, I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, 
From His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. You know, John tells us this is a universal judgment. There's no escaping from the judgment of God. There's nowhere to run to. There's nowhere to flee to. You know, back in the Old Testament, Jonah didn't want to do God's will. So he got on a ship and started sailing across the Mediterranean Sea like he was going to get away from God somehow. And that, that just didn't work out for him, did it? Didn't work at all. There's nowhere to go to escape from God. God is all-seeing and all-present. There, there is no escape from the judgment. The, the small and great are there. It doesn't matter if I'm rich or poor or tall or short or black or white or male or female. We're all going to participate. Nobody's going to get overlooked. Nobody's going to fall through the cracks and, and get missed somehow in this judgment and the standard is is our works they're being judged by what they did how they lived how her life compares to God's teachings and if we're not recorded in God's book if he doesn't recognize my name on the list there's this lake of fire that's described, this place of everlasting punishment. Now for those who are in, on God's list, then in chapter 21, you know, there, there's a picture of this new Jerusalem that in verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself shall be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immortal, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, two destinations. And we know it's, it's sort of an open book test. God has given us the instructions on how to get to the right destination. And, and there in Luke 16, when, when Jesus describes the rich man Lazarus, the, the thing that the rich man wants more than anything else is send somebody back to warn my brothers. 
And there's not anybody coming back from the dead to warn us. The, the answer, Abraham's answer is they have Moses and the prophets. They, they have God's word. Let them read that. They have the scriptures. And if they're not going to listen to the scriptures, they're not going to listen if somebody comes back from the dead, Abraham answers. We have the information given to us. We just need to read it and follow it when we think about the afterlife. I'm going to sing the song of invitation that was listed. If you're here this evening and you need to prepare for the life after this one, then we can assist you with that. You need to hear the word. Romans 10 verse 17, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we've got to believe the evidence presented to us about Jesus being the Son of God. John 8, 24, Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. God demands a change in us. He demands repentance, a turning around of our life. Let's accept you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, verse 3. And again in verse 5, Jesus repeats the same thing. And to confess our faith in Christ as the Son of God, Romans 10 and verse 10, to be baptized, to be baptized, immersed in water. It's symbolic of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but it's the answer of our conscience to God. It saves us, 1 Peter 3, 21. It washes away our sins, Acts 22, verse 16. If you're here and we can help you in any way to prepare for the life to come, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing.